Chapter 13 of Tales from Ariosto by Joseph Shield Nicholson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Tales from Ariosto by Joseph Shield Nicholson. Chapter 13 The Marriage of Bradamant. Whilst Rogero was still lying hid in the house of Leo, there came to the city news of the proclamation by the King of France that whosoever would have Bradamant to wife must withstand her attack, sword in hand, from sunrise to sunset. Now Leo, though a valiant knight, knew well his own powers, and he knew that such a trial he could not survive. As often happened in the days of chivalry, Leo had given his love to his ideal without even seeing her. He had heard of the prowess and of the gentleness of the maiden knight, and of her beauty and fearless courage, and he had worshipped her from afar like a goddess. He longed to make her empress of the East, and to give his life in her service. But the more he honoured her, the more he knew he could not gain her hand in battle. And in this strait, the guileful wisdom of his Greek blood came to his aid. He bethought him of the rescued knight, whose name he did not know, for now less than ever would Ruggiero have his name divulged. To Leo it seemed that no living knight, not even Bradamant herself, could stand against him in single combat, and he designed to make Ruggiero fight in his name for the hand of Bradamant. No disguise, he thought, could be more complete than full armour with device on shield and surcoat changed, and none would know that another was playing his part. It only remained to induce the rescued knight of the unicorn to undertake the task. But little need was there of the eloquence of the Greek, for more than by any words Ruggiero was moved by his own sense of obligation. And though to him it seemed incredible that he should fight with Bradamant to win her hand for another, Yet such was his gratitude to Leo, and so was he overpowered by his courtesy, that with a face of joyous alacrity he consented at once, and although as soon as his word was given he was tormented night and day by grief, and knew that he had promised his own death, he never for a moment repented of the promise, or flinched from the ordeal. For Leo he would die a thousand deaths." Of his own death he had no doubt at all. If he did not die of very grief, with his own hand he would loosen the soul from its earthly bonds. Die he must. The only question was the way of his death. Sometimes he thought to make of set purpose a weak defence, and lay open his heart to her sword. And to die by her hand would be a blessed death. But if he failed then he would not fulfil his debt to Leo. And to Leo he had promised to fight for him and gain for him his chosen consort. He had promised to fight in very deed and not in counterfeit. And in the conflict of thoughts and fears, one thing only was always left. Whatever betide, he must keep his faith with Leo. With a numerous company of knights and nobles, they set out for Paris, and Ruggiero was disguised in Greek dress, so that no one knew that he was the knight of the unicorn. 
On their arrival, Leo did not enter the city, but pitched his tents in the open. The same day he sent an embassy to King Charles, and the king in person came to visit him and do him honour. Thereupon, Leo told him the reason of his coming, and prayed the king to hasten the event, for he had come to make Bradamant his wife, or meet his death at her hand in battle. Joyfully, King Charles gave his consent. The next day was fixed for the combat, and all the night the king's men laboured to get ready the lists beneath the walls of Paris. The night before the combat was to Ruggiero like the last night of the prisoner condemned to death. In order to make his disguise more certain, he had chosen to fight with the sword only, for he feared that with lance and horse Bradamant would discover that he was not Leo. And when he chose the sword for weapon, he did not mean to fight with the fateful Balisarda, which Orlando had restored to him after Lipadusa, for well he knew that no armour could withstand its keenness. And even the common sword that he did choose he took pains to blunt with a hammer, lest in the fight he should by accident wound his lady, for it was his intent to defend himself only, and to win the battle for Leo by simple endurance until sunset. To make his disguise more certain, Ruggiero put on the surcoat of Leo over the armour of Hector, and he took Leo's red shield with the two-headed golden eagle of the Empire of the East. The two were of the same stature, and Ruggiero put on his armour in Leo's tent, and when he came forth, all men thought he was Leo, who in truth lay hidden, whilst Ruggiero was playing his part. Far different were the designs of Bradamant. She herself, with her own hands, sharpened her sword, and all the time she prayed that it might pierce the armour with every blow, and at last reach the heart of the hated Leo. And she longed for the combat to begin, and as eagerly as the spirited horse at the starting post, she quivered with panting strength, and as soon as the signal was given, she drew her blade and rushed on Ruggiero like a thunderbolt. But never did an ancient oak or strong-built tower yield less to the blast of the north wind. Never did a rock stand more unmoved in the beating of the waves of an angry sea than Ruggiero, safe under the arms of Hector, stood unmoved in the tempest of blows that Bradamant rained upon him on every side. And all the time Ruggiero kept only on the defensive, or if he struck a blow it fell as harmlessly as he meant. And as the day drew near its close, the eagerness of Bradamant to bring the fight to a finish increased, and the words of the proclamation kept hammering in her ears, that if she could not conquer the challenger in one day, she must surrender herself. And with the sun near its setting, she put forth her last effort, but put it forth in vain. By the irony of fate she had her wish. Rogero was fighting with her according to her design. Rogero, the only man to whom she would yield. But by the irony of fate she knew it not, and even with the last blow she hoped to kill the man she loved. But the relentless sun sank under the waves, and perforce Bradamant must cease the attack. Well pleased was King Charles, and well pleased were the nobles, 
who thought that in Leo their maiden knight had found a fitting consort, and all of them believed it was Leo who so displayed the courtesies of defence. And Charles pronounced judgment with the breaking up of the fight at sunset that Bradamant should be given to Leo as wife without further delay. Rogero, without a word, and with visor down and in full armour, went back to the shelter of the tents of Leo. And when Leo saw him return in safety, and knew that he had won for him the prize, he embraced him like a brother, and he himself unlaced his helmet. In his joy he promised Rogero any gift he might demand. No recompense seemed enough, not even if he gave him his imperial crown. But Rogero, as if wearied, answered never a word, and laid aside the borrowed surcoat and shield of Leo, and took again his own unicorn. And pleading weariness, he got at last to his own tent. And in the dead of night, he rose up and saddled his frontino, and, unobserved of any, left Leo's camp. He threw the reins on the neck of his horse, and left him to take him whithersoever he would. His fixed thought was to be lost in the depths of the forest, and to lie down to die. In the blackness of his remembrance there was not one ray of light or comfort. He wished he had been left to die in Theodora's prison. Then at least Bradamant would have mourned his death, and she would have kept her freedom. And now he must die. There was no other way. And yet his lady must suffer. And sometimes she must know that he had sacrificed her to Leo, and she would think he had cared little for her love, and she would hate his memory. At break of day he found himself deep in the forest, and he dismounted and loosed Frontino and let him go where he would, and he bade farewell to his noble horse, and bitterly he remembered how Bradamant had once kept him under her charge in the days before their betrothal, and with this last farewell to Frontino, he closed his eyes and waited for death. Not less afflicted was Bradamant, for she could not now plead even for delay in her marriage with Leo, and to her also the only release seemed to be in death, for rather would she be dead than take any other than Rogero. And all alone in the darkness of her sorrow, she made words for her thoughts. Alas, my love, on what long journey can you have gone that you alone never heard of this challenge? If you had heard, surely you would have been the first to accept. Surely you must have known the real meaning. I meant to hold the world at bay for your sake. Perhaps this Leo has laid for you some snare and has kept you a prisoner so that he might make the trial before you. In my pride I never dreamed that any knight but you could withstand my attack. I thought to myself to beat away all others, and to yield to you at the first blow. But God has punished me for my presumption. He has made me yield to a man who never before in his life wrought a deed worthy of fame. And then her thought took another course, and she said to herself that she would not give herself to Leo, she would break her word and her oath, 
and if to the world she seemed inconstant, in her heart she was more constant than the hardest rock, constant, as she had promised Rogero, to her only love. And for his sake she would break any other promise, and for his sake be thought by the world as fickle as a leaf in the wind. So she mourned all the night, and all unknown to her a way of escape was being prepared. In the early morning Marfisa appeared before King Charles, and fiercely declared that she would not suffer this great wrong to be done to her brother, that Bradamant had been betrothed to Ruggiero, and that she was in very deed his wife before God. And Marfisa declared that in her presence the two had said the words and given the pledges that make man and wife, and that neither one nor the other was free or could be free. Much perturbed was Charlemagne, and he sent at once for Bradamant, and in the presence of Amon her father, told her all that Marfisa had said. And Bradamant answered not a word, but held down her head, as if in assent to the truth of Marfisa's words. Ronaldo and Orlando were delighted with this turn of fortune, for in their love of Ruggiero they had almost decided to take Bradamant from her father by force to prevent the marriage with Leo and now they could plead that the promise and the pledges were as solemn as marriage, and that the betrothal could not be broken. Prince Amon, for his part, declared that the story of a secret betrothal was a plot in his despite. Even supposing that there had been such pledges, still there was a fatal bar to their fulfilment. The promise must have been given before Ruggiero had been baptised Christian, and therefore, the one being pagan, and the other Christian, no betrothal of marriage could hold good. And in any case it was now too late to bring forward such an excuse, for Leo had been put to the peril of a combat, and the objection, if it were valid, should have been made before the proclamation of the challenge. In his perplexity, Charlemagne deferred the espousal with Leo, and prepared to lay the case before his great council, and all France was aflame with the dispute, some taking the side of Leo on the ground of the king's proclamation, but the greater part being in favour of Ruggiero, for the honour of the man and the love of his lady. And Marfisa again intervened. No man, she said, can take Bradamant to wife so long as Ruggiero lives. If then Leo will have her let him fight with Ruggiero, a duel to the death and Charles himself carried this challenge to Leo. Leo at once gave a ready assent to this new challenge, for he thought again to let the Knight of the Unicorn play his part, and kill Ruggiero for him as he had won Bradamant. He did not know that the Knight of the Unicorn had buried himself in the depths of the forest, any more than he knew that in truth he was Ruggiero. But when he found that the Knight did not return, he began to fear that he must himself essay the battle with Ruggiero, and he had little hope of victory. Therefore he sent far and wide to find the Knight of the Unicorn, and himself took part in the search. At last, by the aid of the good genius of Ruggiero, who more than once had saved him from himself and from others, Leo found his long-sought knight, 
but found him at the point of death in the forest. He had lain down in full armour with helmet on his head and sword at his side, and his head pillowed on his shield, and in his agony of regret and despair he did not hear the approach of Leo and Melissa, and quietly they came nearer, and when Leo saw his distress he took him in his arms as a brother, and he asked him, with the gentlest words that he could find, to let him know the reason of his grief, and he implored him by the love he bore him to let him share his distress or give him aid, and all he had in the world he offered to his friend, and in the end Rogero could no longer refuse to yield to so great an affection, and in a strained voice he began, My lord, when you shall hear who and what I am, you will no more try to save me from death, you will rather rejoice in it. Know then that I am that Rogero whom you have so much cause to hate. I am that Rogero who not so long ago left this court of France in search of you to kill you, for by your death alone it seemed to me I could save Bradamant from her father's plan of marriage with you. But since man proposes and God disposes, I fell into that need where your courtesy made me altogether change my wish, and not only did my hatred vanish, but I desired in every way I might to do you honour. You asked me, not knowing I was Ruggiero, to win for you the lady, and rather I had wished you to ask from the heart from my body. But you know how I answered to your desire, with no thought of myself. Bradamant is yours. Take her to yourself in peace. Better seems to me your good than mine own. But let it content you when I lose her, as lose her I must, that at the same time I quit this life. But I must tell you that you cannot wed Bradamant whilst I am still alive, for between us there was a solemn betrothal, and in the eyes of God we are man and wife. Thunderstruck was Leo, and for a time in his amazement he stood like a statue, without a movement of lip or eye, an image of wonder. And when he knew indeed that it was Ruggiero, not a whit was his goodwill towards him abated, but so much the deeper was his sympathy. And to show that he was in worth the son of an emperor, he vowed that if in all else he must yield to Ruggiero, he would not be unequal to him in courtesy. And he said, If on that day, my Ruggiero, when by your stupendous valour my army was destroyed, I had known, as I know now, that you were Ruggiero, your courage would have taken hold on me just as much as it did when I did not know you, and it would have driven out from my heart the hatred I bore you as my rival. I will not deny that before I knew that you were Ruggiero, I hated your name, but banish the thought that this old hatred will ever return. And if when I drew you up from the dungeon I had known the truth, I would have done to you the same as I will do now. And if at that time when I was not in your debt, I would have willingly given up Bradamant, now that you have ventured your life for me, and for my sake given up your dearest hopes, I should be the most ungrateful of men if I did not now give up the claim. 
my claim is as nothing to yours, and though I loved her as the flower of chivalry, I loved her not in your manner, so that without her I could not live, and if she were given to another I must die. Far be it from me to wish your betrothal should be broken by your death, so that she might be free to become my queen. Not only would I lose her, but I would lose all I have in the world, and life itself, rather than you should suffer such pain. I only complain of your distrust of me. You might have known you could do with me as you chose, and yet you chose to die of grief rather than confide in me. Thus he spake, and every word that Rogero offered in reply he gently put aside, and at last Rogero said, I surrender, I take my life again from you, but how shall I ever redeem this second debt? And Melissa had brought with her food and wine, and she ministered to Rogero, who was near to death through fasting and distress. And when Frontino heard the other horses, he came back to his master. But in his weakness, Rogero, even with the aid of Leo, could hardly mount. And after riding half a league or thereby, they came to a great abbey, and there they rested, until after three days the knight of the unicorn got back his strength. When they came to the royal capital, they heard that the night before an embassy had arrived from Bulgaria, and they were told that that nation had elected Rogero their king, and the ambassadors had hoped to find him in France with Charlemagne, and had come to offer him the crown and the lordship over their territory. The old squire of Rogero, who had come with them, had told them after the great battle, in spite of his master's command, the name of the Knight of the Unicorn, and passing by their own royal lineage, they had chosen Rogero for their king, and they had heard of his capture by Ungiardo, and his torture by Theodora, and how he had escaped from his prison. But they knew no more, and had come in search of him to France, in the hope that he had returned to the court of Charlemagne. Rogero had entered Paris secretly, and without being recognised by any. The next morning, Leo bade Rogero put on again the same surcoat with the two-headed golden eagle, and take the same shield, pierced and cut as they were in the fight with Bradamant, so that he might appear just as when he left the lists after his victory. And Leo chose for himself his richest jewels and his most magnificent royal robes, and unarmed, and surrounded by a goodly company of his nobles, he took Rogero to present him to King Charles, and on their entrance he bowed before Charles, who had risen to do him honour. Then, taking Rogero by the hand, he said, whilst all eyes were fixed upon them, This is the knight who, disguised in these arms, made good his defence against the attack of Bradamant from sunrise to sunset, and since she failed to kill him, or take him prisoner, or drive him from the field, most noble king, by your own proclamation, he has won Bradamant for wife, and he has now come hither to claim that she be given to him. And apart from the bond, there is none other so worthy of her either in valour or in the love that he bears to her, and should any dare to oppose his claim, he is here to defend his right to the death. 
Charlemagne and the rest of his court were struck with amazement, for they had supposed it was Leo himself who had gained the fight, and they wondered greatly who the unknown might be. But Marfisa heard this story of Leo with scornful impatience, and she hardly waited for him to finish his words when she broke in. As Ruggiero is not here to take up this challenge for his betrothed, I will take it up, I, his sister, and I defy any one soever to say he has any claim on Bradamant, or dare put himself in merit before Ruggiero. And with such rage and sudden fierceness did she speak, that many believed she would forthwith begin the attack on the disguised knight, even in the royal presence. But it seemed to Leo that he had carried his play far enough, and lifting up the helmet from Rogero's head, he turned to Marfisa and said, Here he is, ready to fight for himself. And quick as thought, Marfisa threw her arms round Rogero's neck as if she would never leave him. And Rinaldo and Orlando and Charles himself pressed about him with joyful greetings, and the old King Sobrino and Dudon and Oliver and the rest of the paladins and all the court crowded round him with acclamation. And when the turmoil of joyousness was quieted a little, Leo told all the story of Ruggiero's defeat of the Greeks, and of his captivity, and of his release, and how, to pay his debt in courtesy, he had of his own accord fought with Bradamance in Leo's name. And never in this world, said Leo, had courtesy been carried to so great a height. And he told how Ruggiero thought to end his misery with his life, and how they had found him at the point of death. And so well did he tell the tale, that every eye was moistened in sympathy. And then he turned upon Prince Amon, and not only made him give up his opposition to Ruggiero, but made him go to him and ask his pardon, and beg him to take his daughter Bradamant in marriage. Quickly they ran one and another to tell the news to Bradamant, and they found her weeping in the secrecy of her chamber, and with gladness one upon the other told her the joyous tidings, and the sudden change from the depths of grief to incredible delight almost stopped the beating of her heart. Scarcely could she stand on her feet, and despite of her courage and strength, known over all the world, she all but died for joy. So great was the goodwill of all the court and all the city to this noble union, that even Garno and the rest of the house of Maganza, who were to be the great betrayers, put on the semblance of joyousness and covered up their secret hatred with smiles. Besides their old enmities, they had lost in these latter days men of their house at the hands of Bradamant and Ruggiero, and they were enraged to see the house of Montalbano so honoured by the king. But as cunning as foxes, they held their peace and waited. The ambassadors from Bulgaria, who had come to Charles in the hope of finding their champion of the unicorn, were overjoyed at the fulfilment of their hopes and with reverence bowed before Ruggiero and begged him to return with them to Bulgaria, and they told him that in Adrianople the royal crown and sceptre awaited his coming, and they said they needed his help for a second time, for they had heard that Constantine was himself preparing to attack them with a great host, and if he would come to their aid, they would make him emperor of Constantinople, 
Ruggiero made acceptance of the offer of the crown and promised to go back to Bulgaria after the third month, and Leo assured him on his royal faith that so long as he was king of Bulgaria, he need not fear that peace with the Greeks would be broken, and that he need make no haste to leave France, for he would persuade his father the emperor to give up all the lands and castles in dispute in honour of his friend. This offer of a kingdom to Ruggiero took away the last of the hindrances to his marriage, for Beatrix, the mother of Bradamant, who had thought the valour and noble descent of Ruggiero of little worth, was highly pleased to have for her son-in-law a king. Under the orders of Charlemagne himself, the most splendid festivals were designed for the celebration of the marriage in Paris. He honoured Bradamant as if she had been his own daughter, and he was ready to spend the half of his royal treasures. He held open court, and from far and near all sorts of people, rich and poor, knights and jugglers, Greeks and barbarians and Latins, came in such numbers that the city could not contain them, and they were forced to pitch their tents beyond the walls. And the royal city itself was bedecked with a blaze of flowers and the greenery of intertwining branches, and with cloth of gold and silk and the richest adornments, and never in this world was a city seen so gay. On the last day of the festivities a great banquet was held on the open plain before Paris, where a few days before had been the fierce combat. On the right hand of Charlemagne sat Bradamant, and on his left Ruggiero. Hardly had the feast begun, when there was seen spurring in haste across the plain, towards the banqueting tables, a knight in full armour. Huge of person was he, and of formidable aspect, and horse and man were all covered with black. The rider was Rodomont, king of Algiers. Through the scorn put upon him by Bradamant when she unhorsed him at his bridge, he had made a vow not to wear armour, nor gird on sword, nor mount a horse, for a year and a month and a day, and for that time to live like a hermit in his cell. Such was the custom in those days of valiant knights for penance for their failure. And although during this long time he had heard of the great battle between Charlemagne and his sovereign king Agramant, he paid no heed, as if the matter concerned him not at all. But as soon as the year had passed, and the month, and the last long day, with new arms and horse and sword and lance, he rode in fury to the court of King Charles. Without dismounting, without bending his head, or making one sign of salutation, he showed by his bearing how much he held in scorn the king and all his court. Astonished were all the guests at such insolence, and they stopped their feasting, and stopped their pleasant converse, to hear what the insolent knight would say. As soon as he had come in front of Charles and Ruggiero, with a loud voice, and full of pride, he cried out, I am Rodamont, king of Sarza, and I defy you, Ruggiero, to mortal combat. And before sunset I will prove on your body that you have been unfaithful to Agramant your lord, and that you deserve no honour from these knights because you are a traitor. And though your felony is known to all men, and you cannot deny that you have become a Christian, still, to make it doubly sure that you are a traitor, 
I have come to prove it on this field. And if any one here should offer to fight on your behalf, him also will I fight, and half a score besides. Against you all I will maintain what I have said. At these words, Rogero sprang up, and having asked leave of Charles, made reply that Rodamont lied, and who else soever called him a traitor, that he had so borne himself with his king as to be blameless, that he had always done his duty by his sovereign, and that with his own hand and with aid from no other he would defend his cause, and that he would show Rodamont he should find his single arm more than enough. But all the paladins, one with another, offered to fight in his cause, Rinaldo and Orlando, Oliver and Dudon, and the twin brothers Griffon and Aquilant, and most insistent of all was Marfisa. And they said to him that being newly wed, he ought not so to trouble his own marriage feast. But Rogero answered, Be still, to me such an excuse is foolishness. And he made them bring the arms that he had won of the Tartar king, which had first been worn by Hector, and his good horse Frontino. And Orlando fastened on his spurs, and Charles himself girded on his sword, and Bradamant and Marfisa laced his armour. Astolfo held the horse, and the son of Ogier the stirrup, and all about him were the rest of the famous paladins. And when he was armed and mounted, they hastened to the lists that had been set up for friendly jousting in the festival. And the noble ladies and maidens with pale faces, as fearful as doves driven from a field of corn by a furious storm of hail and thunder, looked with dread on this sudden peril for Rogero for they thought he could not withstand the giant Saracen. And so it seemed to all the common people, and even to the greater part of the knights and nobles, for they had in remembrance how Rodamont had raged through Paris, and, all unaided, had devastated half the city with sword and flame. And at that day, and for many a day after, there remained the wreckage of his ruinous onslaught, and greater loss the city never suffered. More than any other, in spite of her courage, trembled the heart of Bradamant. Not that she believed the Saracen was in strength or courage better than Rogero, nor that Rodamant had the right on his side, which often gives honour where it is due, even to the weaker. For none of these things was she afraid. She feared for him only because fear is part of love. How gladly would she herself have undertaken the fight, even if for certain it meant her death. How gladly would she have died more than once, if such a thing could be, to save her lover from the chance of death. But no reason could she offer to make Rogero entrust to her the battle, and with sorrowful face and trembling heart she watched the struggle. With lowered lance the knights met in full career, and on the shock the lances were shivered to splinters. The pagan's lance, which struck the middle of the shield, had no effect on the perfect steel that Vulcan had tempered for Hector. But the lance of Rogero passed right through the shield of his enemy, and had the lance held firm, it would have pierced the hauberk, even had it been of adamant. With such fury was it driven, and in one charge the battle would have ended. But the lance was broken, and with the shock both horses were thrown back on their haunches. With rein and spur both knights recovered, 
and in place of the lance took to the sword, and managing their horses with the highest skill, each tried to find some weak spot in the armour of his opponent. No longer had Rodomont the dragon-skin that was fashioned by Nimrod, which no steel could pierce. No longer had he the heavy sword or the proved helmet of his ancestor, for when he had been overthrown by Bradamant with the golden lance at the bridge, he had left all his arms hanging on Isabella's tomb. The armour he now wore was armour of proof, but not perfect as was the old. But not even the old armour that had come to him from Nimrod could have withstood the fateful Balisarda, which could cut through any steel and any magical charm. Rogero, with this mighty weapon, more than once pierced the armour of Rodamond. When the pagan saw the blood reddening his armour from many wounds, the tempest of his wrath rose to greater fury, and he threw away his useless shield, and with both hands and all his might struck the helmet of Rogero, as when by the engine placed between two ships a heavy weight is raised up by many men working at pulleys, and is suddenly let fall on a great beam with sharpened end to drive it into the bed of a river. So heavy and so sudden was the blow from the two-handed sword of Rodamont that fell on the helmet of Rogero. The helmet, made by Vulcan, alone saved man and horse from being cut in two, and Rogero, stunned with the blow, swayed in the saddle. Quick as thought, before he could recover, the Saracen had given him a second blow, and, hoping to make an end, for the third time he struck him with all his might, but this last time the tempered steel of the sword could no longer stand the strain, and it broke in pieces in the hand of the Saracen, and left him disarmed. Nothing daunted, Rodamont threw himself on Rogero, who was all but senseless, swaying on his horse. Rudely the Saracen wakened him from his swooning, for with his mighty arm he caught him round the neck, and by main force dragged him from the saddle and threw him to earth. But the fall all at once gave back to Rogero his senses, and even as he touched the ground he was filled with anger and shame when he saw the look on Bradamant's face who in fear for her lover had herself almost fallen. With blood burning to avenge his shame, Rogero sprang to his feet and grasped his sword and faced the Saracen. Rodamont tried to ride him down, but lightly Rogero stepped aside and caught the horse by the bridle with the left hand and dragged him round. At the same time, with his sword in the right hand, he wounded his enemy in the side and in the thigh. Rodamont, who still held in his hand the hilts of the broken sword, threatened again to stun him even with this fragment of his weapon. But Rogero seized him by the arm with both hands and dragged the Saracen from the saddle. Such was the strength and the dexterity of Rodamont that as he fell he kept his feet and tried to grapple with his enemy. But Rogero kept him at bay with his sword, for he feared to be overpowered by the huge body of the pagan, and as he saw the blood streaming from thigh and side, and he knew that he must gain the victory if he waited. But Rodamont also knew his own peril in delay, and with all his force he hurled the fragment of his broken sword at Rogero. It struck him on the side of the helmet, and glanced off neck and shoulder, and so heavy was the blow that Rogero could hardly keep his feet. Again the pagan tried to close but his wounded thigh hindered him, and he fell on one knee. Rogero, though nearly stunned, struck wildly at Rodamont, 
and at last made him rest one hand as well as the knee on the earth. But the Saracen again recovered and got to his feet and seized Rogero in his arms, and in a moment they were locked together. Rodamond was feeling the loss of blood from his open wounds, and Rogero, who was getting back his strength, knew his advantage and knew how to keep it. Where he saw the Saracen was bleeding most, there he pressed him most with arm and breast and rapid change of foot. Rodamond, in a fury of rage, caught Rogero by the neck and shoulder, and now dragging him forward and now thrusting him back and now lifting him from the ground, he turned and twisted and tried to throw him to the earth. But Rogero put forth all his skill and quickly changed his grip, so that at last he seized Rodamond round the middle, and at the same time with all his force pressing on his breast and on his wounded side and crooking his right leg in the other's knee, he threw him so that head and back struck the ground. And with the fall, the wounds of Rodamond sent out a fresh stream of blood that reddened all the earth. Then Rogero made haste so to use his good fortune that his foe should rise so more. With one hand he drew his dagger, and raised it above the eyes of Rodamond, and with the other he seized him by the throat, whilst he pressed his knees into his stomach and wounded side. And Rodamond lays helpless and crushed as the miner, who in his greed for gold has burrowed so that the earth has fallen on him. And Rogero, pressing the point of his dagger to the bars of his visor, summoned him to surrender, and promised him his life. But the other who feared far less to die than to show by the least act a sign of cowardice, still twisted and struggled, and answered not a word. If he was conquered in strength, he was not conquered in rage. And as a great mastiff, with the fangs of a stronger hound in his throat, with burning eyes and foaming mouth, still struggles on in vain, so did the Saracen still struggle with his conqueror. At last Rodamond, in his twisting, got free his right arm, and found his dagger, and tried to thrust it into the loins of Rogero. But the young hero saw his danger if he spared any longer the life of the Saracen, and lifting his hand as high as he could, twice and three times he buried his dagger in the head of Rodamond. And the wrathful soul that in this world had been so proud and insolent fled from the cold body, and went blaspheming down to hell. The End End of chapter 13 End of Tales from Ariosto by Joseph Shield Nicholson